good to be here with you. My name is Eric uh, Wieger. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, my wife and I went to Turkey to serve the Lord in 1998, and we returned uh, in 2009 with our children mostly grown. Now they're really grown, and uh, we have one son still at home uh, doing some more work on his college education. And I travel back and forth to Turkey and to the countries around Turkey, uh, following up on all kinds of ministry relationships in the region, and trying to see what God wants to do next through through uh, work and my friends and our colleagues and surrounding countries. So uh, I don't want to take too much time on... Uh, introducing the missionary work because we want to get into the Word of God. But I thought I would sort of rush you through some of the imagery to let you know a little bit about uh, who I am and what I do. I do have somewhere some cards uh, that um, will uh, point you to some items of prayer and so forth. We'll put them on the back there later. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'd guide our time together and help us to bond in Christian love and unity in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is our Savior, he is our Lord, and he is our head, our bridegroom, our life, and our all in all. We thank you for his Holy Spirit within us and his word of God really implanted within us to grow. We pray, Father, for the church in Turkey. We want them to grow and be strong. We pray, Father, for all those who can help them in inside and outside the country to be united and work together. We pray for new church planting efforts, new evangelistic efforts, new training and teaching and study centers. We pray, Father in heaven, for the word of God to be magnified and glorified in Turkey. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, really sorry about that clicker, but I'm going to rush you through here a little bit. Goes On Ministries is just a name I'm putting on my ministry, which I hope will grow and involve other people. I called it Goes On because that's the place where the northern tribes were were settled by Assyria back in around seven before 700 B.C. Uh, and it seems to line up with a place that I've been quite active in, that is just south of the Turkish border in Iraq, a place called Zaho, which may very well be the Gozan, uh, near to the cities of the Medes. There's more than one place called Gozan. So anyway, Gozan Ministries really uh, reflecting the fact that there is a lot of forced exile now, as there was in the times of the Assyrians. And just as God used people who were forcibly removed from their homes and transplanted and on the move to prepare the way for his gospel in that whole region of the world as he scattered the Hebrew people across the Middle East. Even now, I believe God can use all of this movement, exile, refugee status, uh, to bring forth uh, a renewal of the original Christian faith, which was really so original in this part of the world. This is really where things got started. Uh, So I have 
many friends and I see a little bit of where things are going. I can't see everything and nobody can. But it seems like we need some new approaches to solidify the gains of the last 30, 40 years of missionary work. And only God can do that, but we want to do our part. Uh, we need some more permanent and long-term looking multi-generational ministries uh, for church planting and for developing disciples. Uh, so uh, if you'll click through to the next slide, if you would. I'm going to just say click and you click. So my initial interest was in the Kurdish people. It uh, still is, and it's broadened since then. These are names of Kurdish tribes and tribal confederations. And you see how they overlap Syria and Iraq and Iran, and the lion's share are in Turkey. Also up to the north, you have Armenia and the Republic of Azerbaijan and Georgia, where quite a few Yazidi Kurds went as refugees with the Armenians a 100 years ago. And they have communities, therefore, in the ex-Soviet republics, an interesting diaspora under which there's ministry. Click. And uh, here is uh, just a map of Turkey with these countries around it in which I've been traveling in the last several years. Click. Diyarbakir is sort of my home base. Click. And here's an inside of the chapel there. Uh, they've been uh, recognizing new leadership. Uh, we started there in 1995 as a home meeting, and it's grown to be uh, an assembly with a national reach uh, through the media. Uh, we have a number of brothers who appear on something called Life Program, which is a, a really powerful Bible and gospel preaching satellite television programming in Turkish and Arabic and some in Kurdish. Next uh, in Izmir, on the other end of the country, Diyarbakir's in the east, Izmir's in the west. I have some close colleagues. Next, uh, next again. Go. Click. And here's my brother Murat making some, some pews for a storefront church we've just opened up, and I just found the clicker. So I'll, <laughs> it's in my pocket. <laughs> what is in my pocket? Okay, <laughs> see if this works. Uh, and uh, they've had an opening there. This is in the suburb called Balchova, um, a hot springs uh, suburb. Uh, every, everyone gets their heat geothermal, and the cockroaches love it. Uh, we, we used to live there. That's Murad over there to the right. Uh, and here he is with a YWAM team from the Ukraine. Or Actually, they're out of Russia, but there's a Turkish leader to it. Uh, does this have a pointer by any chance? No. Okay. Uh, the fellow at the far head of the table is a Turkish brother in the ministry named Irfan. We'd love him to come join us in Balchova. Here they are on the boat uh, because they're about to visit. Um, there they're in a paddy wagon, <laughs> arrested, uh, because they were visiting um, a refugee uh, camp on the island of Lesbos. Uh, a number of our Kurdish uh, friends who are believers and they had uh, run away from Syria and they had settled in Izmir for two, three years. They went to Lesbos and Samos and Leros, these Greek islands, and were in the refugee camps. So we sent a team to visit them in their refugee camps. Some of them wish they had never left uh, Turkey. <clears throat> the refugee camps can be much harder than living in Turkey. 
but Murad is out here on the islands visiting them. The problem is that one of the refugee camps is so badly run that the Greek police don't want anyone to know about it. So when they walked in through the main gate and the main security after they were 100 meters in, they all got arrested and uh, their, their images were all deleted so they wouldn't publish the images. Uh, we think the Greeks are probably cheating the UN on refugee funds in that camp. Uh, at any rate, uh, they had a great visit to the various islands going by Greek ferry boat from island to island, very much like Paul went in the book of Acts uh, down that same coast through the islands. Uh, this is a baptism in Izmir. By the way, that fellow there in the white hair on the right, his name is also Marat. Uh, he's turned out to be quite the false accuser in the Andrew Brunson trial. And he said marvelous things about who I really am and so forth. Uh, so the Andrew Brunson trial has a long indictment full of false witness and false te testimony. And some of that, most of it is from people who were within the churches but weren't the real thing. Uh, so Murat and the white hair is one of them. He, what motivated him? We don't know. We found out later he's a gambling addict, had pressure on him. Uh, here are some of the Chinese and Koreans who came to join Andrew Brunson for, uh, in Izmir for the 24-7 uh, prayer ministry as well as uh, a training, a year of training, which I was involved in kicking off. The, the platinum blonde gal is Murat's Ukrainian wife with her two lovely children. These are our partners in the ministry. Uh, the tall... Uh, American fellow in the front row there is Kent. That would be Andrew Brunson's close friend who's come to basically take his place in the ministry while Andrew is under arrest in Izmir going into the end of his second year now. Um, so these are our circles. This is a church called Resurrection Church, which Andrew began, uh, but Murat is beginning a whole new work Resurrection Church is charismatic, uh, and uh, we would like to do something that is not committed to that uh, theological angle, but we, they are still our friends. Uh, Murat and uh, Marina are Ukrainian citizens, and so we, what we discovered in a visit to Kiev uh, in the Ukraine is a lady named Leila, a young brother named Alexander, who have a wonderful ministry to displaced Kurdish Yazidi families living in all places Kiev. Uh, they had been in Armenia before, and they'd moved through Georgia to Kiev, 200 families. I'll soon be going to do an evangelistic outreach with Leila to those families in Kiev. Uh, these widespread diasporas are interesting because when people come to know the Lord in one place like Kiev, they can be useful in another place like the Greek islands or like northern Iraq where they speak the Kurdish language among the refugees and other Yazidis, etc. That's Alexander to the right. He's a good translator from English to Russian and so forth. It's a great help. Here are the folks in Kiev. Uh, over to the right, this is another boat picture on, from the islands, but over to the right is Leila. So pray for Layla. She serves the Lord full-time. Uh, she studies the scriptures full-time, reaches out 
two Yazidi families there in Kiev, a Kurdish ex-Yazidi herself. Now, her roots go back to Tbilisi, Georgia, where there's another community of Yazidis. Here is Rezo, and Rezo is an ex-Yazidi, knows the Lord, the Kurdish language, and is leading uh, Kurdish Yazidi kids to the Lord, discipling them in a what he calls a Kurdish cultural center, a house that is being uh, refurbished for the purpose. Over to the left, uh, the man in the blue is uh, committed to reaching Jewish people in the Caucasus region. The, the Caucasus are Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and there are communities of Jews who actually say they're not from the tribe of Judah but are also of these northern tribes that were displaced by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C. and are spread out through that region. So there's interesting ministry going on. Rezo has trained Kurdish young people in discipleship and sent them back to Turkey to minister in Kurdish for four-month-long outreaches. And that's a whole new ballgame where you... You train uh, these Kurdish believers in the Caucasus and send them into Turkey from whence their great-grandparents fled during the time of the Armenian genocide a hundred years ago. So there's, there's an interesting circulation of people now. There's Armenians in Armenia who have the same burden to go back to the villages from which their grandparents, great-grandparents were driven on threat of death and witness there in the love of Christ. Uh, this is some preaching going on, trilingual preaching in Georgia. Uh, you have multi-languages, multiple languages there. So I was preaching in, um, how did it go? I think I preached in English and, um, how did they say it, Svetlana? Anyway, she preached, she, she translated into Russian and my brother Murat went from Russian to Turkish because there were Turkish guests in the church. Armenia, just south of, of Georgia, but colder, not warmer, because it's up in the highlands. You have these um, highland Kurdish Yazidi villages there. This is Boris. Uh, he's really the man of God that has been the channel through which many Yazidis have come to the Lord in Armenia. And I'll just briefly share his testimony, and we'll stop with that. But this gives you some idea of my friends and what I'm up to. Uh, Boris was at the grave site. They were burying a Yazidi. And uh, I think his friend must have been Armenian. And he was drunk because he was always drunk. It was the Soviet times, and vodka was a good medication for Soviet times. And uh, he asked a Yazidi holy man who was coming through, is this Yazidi going to go to heaven? And the holy man said... No, we Yazidis don't go to heaven. We go to hell. And Boris said, well, I think I'll stop being a Yazidi then. And he turned to his Armenian friend and said, how do I become a Christian? (laughs) And the Armenian said, well, you go to my sister and you get a New Testament and read it. So he went to his friend's sister, got a New Testament, and went home, still drunk, waved the New Testament at his wife and said, I've become a Christian and this is my diploma. (laughs) And she said, you're drunk. So he started reading it. He said, I read Matthew and understood nothing. Mark and understood nothing. Luke and understood nothing. 
And then finally I got to John and I got to John chapter 3 and it said God sent His Son and gave His Son for the whole world so that anyone who believes in Him will have eternal life, not perish. And He said, I believed. I understood. And then at some later time He was pouring a glass of vodka and stretching out His arm to grab it and He heard a voice and said, Boris, what are you doing? And He knew it was the Lord and He left drink and uh, has been following the Lord and serving the Lord. He's a, a real missionary to his own people. He, he takes care of seven different house churches in seven different villages, and one, uh, one, one of them has a chapel that they can all come together in some time. So Boris, through Boris, you get Rezo knowing the Lord. Through Boris, you get Layla knowing the Lord, and these people reaching out to other Yazidis. And then Layla comes all the way down to Turkey and ministers to... Kurdish folks are coming up from Syria and, and then goes off to the Greek islands with our friends to follow up on those Kurdish Syrian believers on the move. So uh, it's a, a ministry in motion. We would like to see also some stable centers of training uh, developed that are strong enough not just to maintain but to reproduce themselves. Goes on ministries, I hope. Uh, as my wife said, it goes on and on. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll look um, at Luke today, Luke chapter 16. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your scripture now, your word, the words of your son, Jesus Christ, would penetrate into our hearts Help us understand. Give us a view of eternity, Lord. Give us a proper view of this world's goods, a proper view of our neighbor, a right understanding of Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. First, we read the story. Then we're probably going to talk more about the context of the story than the story, but we'll try to do a bit of both. Time is limited, and I think the context gets neglected. The story is Luke, chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. He had a fulfilled life. What do you think of that? He had fulfillment. He was joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table... Besides, or rather, but even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. I think that's better read uh, as a straight contrast. He was longing to be fed from the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, but the dogs were feeding on the juices falling from his putrid ulcers. Things weren't going well at all. 
Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, There is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. And that none may cross, or simply that none cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that that he may warn them so that they will not come, they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone asks, if someone rises from the dead. Thank you. At the end of this story, Moses and the prophets are mentioned twice, and a very striking statement is made that if you don't listen to Moses and the prophets, even if a man comes from the realm of the dead, and speaks to you, that will not persuade you, that will not bring you to repent. And so, there's a big punch there with that double reference to Moses and the prophets. But it turns out that the whole story starts uh, with a similar reference. We'll have to take it from verse 14 to 18 now. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter, one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now there was a rich man. 
The story of the rich man and Lazarus is designed to explain what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees who were scoffing at him because they loved money, because they had overheard a parable that he had told to his disciples just before this. It's the parable of the unjust steward. That's what got them scoffing and mocking and dismissing Jesus, the parable of the unjust steward. But the parable of the unjust steward doesn't stand alone either. It comes right along with the parable of the lost coin, the lost lamb, and the lost son, and that self-righteous older brother who occupies so much landscape in the parable of the prodigal son. We usually stop before we get to him because he's kind of nauseating. But actually, he's a big part of the story, isn't he? The older brother. And so the Pharisees have been listening to all this, and they love their money, and they decide Jesus is wacko. They're right. He's wrong. Because they love money. Now, the Lord Jesus, in the parable of the unjust steward, in my humble opinion, is simply giving a parable of every one of his disciples' lives. Every one of us pretty much stinks as a steward. It doesn't mean that you don't keep your checkbook well enough. That's not the point. We simply don't use the resources of this life in quite the way God wants us to use them. And at some point, our number's up, The time card's punched, and we need to give an account. And the best way to get out of this situation is something kind of like the unjust steward did. He had authority. He had authority to renegotiate the debts to his master. That's something he had. And once those debts were renegotiated, the master couldn't complain because This man had the signet ring. He had the signature. He had authority. So take your authority over that wealth and use it to reduce the debt of your master's debtors. And then when your master kicks you out of work, you'll have somewhere to stay because, you see, there weren't like retirement communities and Social Security back then. And Jesus says, first of all, that with regard to what this man did is that his master approved him. And then he says, because the children of this dark world are actually more prudent in these things than the children of light. They see the future more clearly. Men of business will get insurance policies. They invest in the future. They're thinking about the future all the time. They're in darkness. They're of this world. The children of light often are not investing very profoundly in their eternal future. But then the Lord Jesus breaks the parallel. See, the parallel would be like this. Okay, so I've got spiritual riches. I have spiritual authority. 
with spiritual authority, I can somehow help people alleviate their debts to God. You know, that, that would be the parallel reasoning. But Jesus doesn't really go there. Maybe there's a bit of truth to that. But Jesus says, use your unrighteous mammon. That's a word for money. And it's called unrighteous because it has no loyalties. It doesn't really belong to you. But use what you've got in hand to make friends for eternity. So that when you move from here to eternity, he's talking to his disciples. He's not saying this is the way you get eternal life. He's saying this is the way you invest in your eternity. Use your resources to make spiritual friends. Use your material resources, your temporal resources, to make eternal friends. And it's true, isn't it? It's true. We kind of like to think, oh, no, no, no. You don't need material resources and temporal resources to make eternal and spiritual friends. That's like there's something ugly about that. No, it's true. Spiritual ministry, gospel ministry, assembly ministry costs. It costs from your bank account. It costs from your material resources. It costs from the stuff you have in your home. It may wreck your furniture. It may wreck your car. It costs. And to the extent that it's cheap is the extent to which it's not working. Nothing's cheap with regard to serving God. It costs. And this is what the Pharisees were huffing and puffing about. Huh, won't cost me anything. You won't see me parting with any of my stuff to make some friend for eternity. They were lovers of money. Now, the overall context of this then will start all the way back in chapter 10 at least. I guess you could take the whole book of Luke, but... In chapter 10, there's something really interesting that's worth looking at. Um, there's a teacher. He's a lawyer, pardon me. In verse 25 of chapter 10, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And then he talks about the two great commandments, loving God with all your being, loving your neighbor as yourself. And it says that the man was wishing to justify himself. Does that sound familiar? We just read that about the Pharisees. They, they justified themselves before men. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a man who becomes a little bit like Lazarus. He's beaten up all over the place. And, and the, the man who saves him, he is a Samaritan, an outcast, an outsider, a person who's viewed as unclean by the Jews. And here's where I think we were talking about this the other day. Uh, both ancient church fathers, but also I think it was David Gooding or Lennox, one of the two, might have been John Lennox. These stories, they work on more than one level. 
In other words, love your neighbor as yourself is the second great commandment. Love God with all your heart is the first, with all your being. But you see in the book of Luke that the ultimate neighbor is, in fact, Jesus Christ. And he's coming to love us as himself. And he's coming to, to, to heal us and to save us. At any rate, this is the story he gives. Is this which one of these did the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself? Well, it was the Samaritan. And then we have the story of Martha and Mary. Now, Martha is busy doing the love your neighbor as yourself stuff, right? She's cooking and getting food ready and so forth. But Mary's doing the love God with all your heart stuff, right? She's sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's just soaking in the word of God. And Jesus says, Martha, you're a bit too worried about all of this stuff. It's Mary who's got it right, because that will not be taken away from her. That is eternal. Soaking in the voice, the word, the message of God in Jesus. That's eternal. Now, just pop on over to chapter 19 as well. I'm afraid it's going to be 18, verse 18. Chapter 18, verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. So we have a similar question and a similar answer. Let's think about the law, Jesus says, when he gets this question from this man in chapter 10, the scribe, and this man in chapter 18, the rich, young ruler. Now, Jesus walks him through the commandments. He says, well, I've kept those. And then he says, well, how about this? Sell everything you've got. Have a garage sale. Have a yard sale. Have a multi-yard sale. You've got a lot of stuff. And then take all of that money and somehow put it into the service, the lives, the needs of the poor and the needy. And then just walk away from it all and follow me. What commandment is that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so we come to a question for us Christians about how to understand the law. And I'll just give you an illustration. Maybe it will help you. Maybe it won't. Think of the law, the law and the prophets, if you will, as a three-story house. Just walk in the front door of the law of Moses, and on the ground floor, what do you see? You see a civil and religious law, and the promise of that law is that if you keep it, you'll be able to stay on a particular piece of real estate on planet Earth. And if you turn your back on that law, God will drive you off from that real estate, the Holy Land, and you'll be among all kinds of other nations who serve other gods. But God will come after you and bring you back. 
That's the ground floor of the law. It never even promises eternal life from that point of view, let alone the idea that if you don't keep it, you'll be going to hell. It doesn't. It's not about that. The ground level is about real estate. It's about being faithful to God. It's about being a nation that stands out above other nations as a light of righteousness and truth. However, there is, I don't know if it's a staircase or an elevator shaft in this house. For some people, they climb up the stairs. For others, they fall into the elevator and it brings them up. But on the next story, there's something else going on. And you see it from the, from the time of Enoch, because Genesis is also the law, right? He was walking with God. And Noah, who walks with God, and Abraham, who's a man of faith and walks with God and doesn't have any of these, any of these rules that we know of that Israel gets later. But even with Moses, I mean, Moses is supposed to die, right? Because he fails to circumcise his son. That's the law of circumcision, Genesis 17. If you don't do it, you die. But God almost kills him, and he is sort of forced to circumcise his son on the way back down to Egypt to save God's people. Moses is not perfect, is my point. The people of Israel, four times during the times of the law, the first five books of, of, of the Bible, four times, God is determined to destroy them all because of their sin, their apostasy. They're running away from God. Four times, Moses three times, Aaron one time, intercedes before God. And because they intercede and pray and, and argue with God about God's reputation and plead with God for God's people and for the manifestation of God's mercy, God says, okay. So how did Israel live? Did they live by the law? They only lived by the mercy of God. They would not exist without the mercy of God operating through the prayers, the intervention of God's chosen servants, Moses and Aaron. So if you're paying attention to the law, you understand that that ground level is not all that there, there is to it. There is grace operating here. And in that grace, you see words in Deuteronomy like loving God with all your heart. How can you love God with all your heart? Only, only to the extent that you become aware of how much he has loved you first. And so what's the creed of Israel in the book of Psalms? The loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. The loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. The loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. This is that upper story to the law and the prophets. And then you go kind of to a third story and you have the, the, the hopes of the coming of the Messiah and of the kingdom of God and of eternal life where there is no more death, where there's resurrection and people are with God in God's perfection. All of that is in the law and the prophets. So when, when, when these individuals, one of them a scribe, the other a rich young ruler who was well-educated in Scripture, 
when they ask, what about eternal life? Jesus points them to the Bible. What about what's there in the law? What's there in the prophets? Let's think it through. And in the law and in the prophets, there's a general teaching about what you have. If you're in Israel, every seventh day, you stop work. No making money on the seventh day of the week. No Saturday sales. Every seventh year, you release your servants and forgive them of their debts and give them a package of capital equipment to start their life afresh and anew as free men. Every 50th year, everyone goes back to their ancestral lands. All debts on all lands are forgiven. The mortgages are wiped away. Because God says, you can't buy and sell my land. You are pilgrims and strangers in my land. My land is unalienable. That means the family name I appoint to it, it belongs to that family. See how sort of anti-materialistic this is. You're giving a tenth to God. In addition, there's first fruits, there's gifts, there's sacrifices, there's offerings, there's vows. You see, in the law, you also forsake all of your possessions. In your heart, in your mind, If you're on that upper story of the law, you've gone upstairs. What you have is all God's. The land you live on belongs to God. And you are a stranger and a pilgrim with him, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like Enoch, who walked hand in hand with the Lord through this life. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, look, You may pride yourselves and think in your external performance that you are right with God. But in fact, your love of money, your love of your possessions, your love of what you have, your love of appearances is detestable to God. And whereas you think you're married to the law, in fact... You've divorced her. And you done and went and married money. And you are adulterers. The verse about divorce and remarriage means what it says. But in the context, he's talking about something, something else, something that's going on in the hearts and minds of these Pharisees. You're adulterers. You're adulteresses. You've married prosperity. We were talking about this, uh, Sam and I were talking about this earlier today. Uh, it, it, it's easy in certain Christian families, certain Christian cultures, to get the notion that life is all about prosperity and prestige 
and the Christian part of it is like the color of the house, but the important thing is the house, a prosperous house, a prestigious house, a prestigious profession, a prestigious education, the accomplishments of life become bottom line. Jesus says, then you're married to the uh, wrong spouse. That's not your real spouse. That's not the will of God. That's not the word of God. That's not what he's calling you to be and to do. And so through this, these passages, we had it in chapter 14. Jesus has all of these people following him, and he is talking about the kingdom of God is like a banquet, and all of the needy people come to the banquet. Praise the Lord. They're all needy people. And then he turns around and he says something really strange. He said, unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciples. Because when you walk into that banquet and you become servants of the king at his banquet table, everything gets left behind and he's all that matters anymore. And so the story of Lazarus, Lazarus is probably... Uh, short for Eleazar, meaning God is my help. My God is is help to me. And there he was in his ulcers and his sores like Job. But what did Job have that Lazarus didn't have? Lazarus had no friends to come and argue with him and tell him he was wrong. That probably distracted Job from his miseries. Have some friends he could get angry at, you know. Really helped him out. Don't underestimate just sitting there with someone who's not doing well. Lazarus had none of that. He had dogs coming and licking his sores. He had no wife to tell him, curse God and die. Maybe that would have been better. At least you can hear a human voice, you know. Lazarus is an example of what many people are troubled by, suffering in the world. Suffering in the world. What do you, how to make sense of Lazarus? What a pointless life, right? And yet the meaning of this story is that, yes, even when you have nothing and far worse than nothing, if you are a believer, you have an eternal, glorious, beautiful future that is real. More real than here and now. And this is the point of the extremes in the story. Most people don't live in these extremes at all, right? You have the rich man. He's extremely, like he's just, he thinks the meaning of life is great, right? Wealth and splendor. He's not really an up and outer. He's, he's an up and inner. He's, he thinks everything's great every day. And yet, after the grave, that means nothing and worse than nothing. And so the point of Jesus here is to say, mammon will not save you, cannot save you, will not comfort you, will do nothing for you, and will probably hurt you, will probably deceive you, will probably lead you down a godless track. Not every rich person is far from God. And yet the scripture says God has given to the poor of this world to be rich in faith. They have a certain 
advantage. People who have very little, but they have other people, and they have the Lord. There's a richness and a beauty there. So the Lord Jesus is saying, look, think carefully about the word of God. There is nothing in the Bible that will change just because you're rich. There is nothing in the Bible that will change just because you're full of sores from head to toe. You will have eternal life based on the repentance and the faith which the Bible gives to you when you listen to it. That's what we're talking about in this story. He wants his brothers to repent. He wants his brothers to be persuaded by a man who goes to them from the dead. And Jesus says, that's not the way it works. It's the word of God. The word of God. Listen to the word of God. It will persuade you. It will teach you how the soul, your soul, is to turn and repent and belong to the Lord. Only the word can do that. Father in heaven, we do pray that you'd help us with our Bibles. Fill us with the scripture, Lord, but fill us deeply in in our inner man so that we're not attached to this earth, to the things of this earth, to the things that we tend to cherish. Draw us to eternal things, to the eternal word, to your beautiful forgiveness, to your wonderful salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.